I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. There was consolidation happening. It ended up becoming a duopoly where there were two manufacturing companies that controlled the four biggest brands and had over 70% market share. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we'll sit down with Philip Krim, co-founder and CEO of Casper, that drove innovation in the mattress industry, which hadn't really evolved over the past century. Casper's direct-to-consumer model has been wildly successful due to a combination of strong products and clever marketing. But the mattress industry still has powerful incumbents, and the overall market still has a lot of catching up to do. We've been blown away uh, at how many kind of copycats Casper spawned and just where we saw competition coming from every angle imaginable. It's, it's really unlike any other startup I've seen. Find out how Philip took the lessons he learned from former ventures to build out the Casper brand, how he and his co-founders crafted each of their company roles in a harmonious way, and why being copied is actually a good thing. Unfinished Biz starts now. Right now. So party on, Robin. <laughs> party on, Wayne. So we got a really, we got an interesting one coming up. We have Philip from Casper. To start with, he's from my hometown, Houston, Texas. Uh, we have some common, common folks we know. UT grad, hook em horns. And <laughs> so between that, while he was at UT, we're going to find out that he started another business that led up to Casper, which is different than some of our other uh, or some of our other guests that we've had where it's their first entrepreneurial journey this is something that you know was really something in the making honestly i think that part of his genius was really focusing and identifying on a, kind of a broken category you know I, I, we're not mattress experts by any means but even as a consumer you you can see that that category is all about high purchase intent in the sense that you don't go and browse mattresses for fun um there's confusing. a high degree of confusion for sure right like it's it's not really that branded of a category and there's really no transparency on something that's actually extremely expensive so you know why is it better why does it cost what it costs you know i think that the 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 intelligent move there really was seeing that there was something broken in all that so phil really took it to him and he stopped by our vmg offices in san francisco to tell us all about that journey I was always fascinated by entrepreneurism and uh, my father ran his own business, but I would say it started in earnest when I was in school at the University of Texas. Uh, when I hook was hook him, hook him, hook him, horns. <laughs> uh, unfortunate, unfortunate defeat uh, this weekend in football. But um, when I was a sophomore at the University of Texas, I started tinkering around with building websites. So I, I learned HTML and learned something called drop shipping, where I could collect orders online through a website and have a manufacturer ship it out. And so I started going down that path and that ultimately became my first company that I owned and operated for about 10 years. Which was what? What did it do? So it was a a portfolio operator of e-commerce websites. And so we would look for different manufacturers and then we would build a website with a a catalog of some of their products. Um, Anything that we could get our hands on that was drop shipped. So window blinds, mattresses, futons, sports tickets, Etc. And this was back in the early 2000s. And so it was before Google was Google. And it was still very much the Wild West of e-commerce and online marketing and digital marketing. But that's really where I learned uh, a lot of the things that have gone into Casper as well. 
full-time job? Yes. Oh, wow. uh, so I ended up uh, on the five-year plan with uh, at Texas. Um, and so I, I did get uh, my degree in marketing and a minor in philosophy, but that uh, kind of ended up taking a little bit less time than the company did, uh, which, which grew to about $10 million a year. So um, be, became an, a real operation and did that post-college for a number of years as well. And then, you know, was there a name of this company? Was there, what, did it, what was the it was name? called the, the Merrick Group was kind of the holding company, but, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it didn't become something that um, people would know by that level. Yeah. So what happened from there? Did you start, is that, is it you, did you start directly start another entrepreneurial venture from there? Or what was? So I did that for about 10 years in total. Um, and what I saw was that kind of the online channels that we were using for customer acquisition got harder and harder. They got more expensive as more players came into the space. And so, um, you know, ended up exiting that business, not for a great outcome, um, but saw that with digital marketing, mobile advertising was really becoming something that was very powerful. And so that's when I moved on to start my second company, uh, which was a company that helped local businesses generate mobile leads. And so we would create a click-to-call campaign for local businesses like tow truck drivers and then charge them on a per-call basis. And it was a great lead gen vehicle for them. And it was when I was working on that, I, I took that through an accelerator program in New York City uh, and ultimately met three of my uh, four co-founders with Casper and uh, learned that selling to small businesses was interesting but a very challenging uh, landscape, a challenging proposition. And so uh, when we started talking about some of my background and my co-founders realized that I'd sold a bunch of mattresses online through my first company and talked to them about uh, kind of the, the lay of the land within the mattress industry, we ultimately, uh, and I'm one of five co-founders, um, decided to go and start working on Casper. And it really came together when we met our fifth co-founder, Jeff, uh, who had a great industrial design background and product design background. And so um, between the five of us, we thought we had kind of the right background to really uh, create a great product, reinvent the experience, and go to market with a, a unique business model for the category at the time. But why, why mattresses? <laughs> uh, you know, we, we get asked that a lot. Um, through my first company, I had sold a bunch of mattresses um, online through e-commerce. And that's where I saw what was going on with the industry. There was consolidation happening. It ended up becoming a duopoly where there were two manufacturing companies that controlled the four biggest brands and had over 70% market share. Retail at the same time was becoming consolidated under Mattress Firm, which ultimately became the first coast-to-coast competitor. And when I met my co-founders for Casper, we started talking about what Warby Parker was doing, what Dollar Shave Club was doing, what Harry's was doing. And we thought that direct-to-consumer model was really interesting. And we also kept kind of socializing the idea around sleep and, and how sleep was so important. One of my co-founders, Neil, his dad's a sleep doctor. This was when Jawbones and Fitbits were becoming really popular, so we were all tracking our sleep and comparing notes around that. And then we would talk about commercially how still going to buy a mattress was worse than buying a used car, and there just had to be a better way. And ultimately, we got so excited by creating the better way that we decided to stop working what we were working on and wind that down and go focus on Casper. And, so, and what year, by the way? What, this what? was 2013. Okay. So summer of 2013 is when we kind of came up with the idea and started um, toying around with it. And then we ultimately launched the business April 22nd, 2014. So the the businesses that you were talking about before, yeah. they were razor blades, they were, you know, uh, glasses, easy things to ship. Um, obviously, mattresses, not so much. So uh, you know, you guys are bright guys. So how did you guys kind of get over that hurdle? Yeah. So, um, 
It's interesting. The uh, we we didn't create kind of the compression technology that we use for our products. We knew it existed, but no one had really ever thought about that as a, a dedicated point of experience with the customer. And the, the mattress industry is one where uh, the incumbents generally didn't think about the end user as their customer. The manufacturers called their customers the stores where they were selling it, and the stores were very transactional. And what we started to think about was end-to-end from the moment you think about needing a mattress all the way through how you get the mattress and try the mattress, uh, there was a lot of room for improvement. So with shipping it, we really created a branded experience about how you unbox the, the product, how you open it. We tried to make it as easy and seamless as possible. We included a, a tool to help you even cut through the plastic. And, and we really just said, like, you know, if we, were, if we were accepting this as our product, as something we purchased, how do we make it as amazing uh, an experience as possible? And one of the things that we latched onto early on was that the idea that you go into a store to lay on a mattress as the right way to know how you sleep on a mattress was just really perverse. One, it wasn't a good experience. You're laying under fluorescent lights. You have a commissioned salesman, usually in a cheap suit, who's uh, standing over you trying to convince you to spend a lot more money in a, a context where there's a huge information asymmetry. This is an infrequent purchase. Consumers don't know a lot about it. And yet, uh, a lot of consumers were going online to do their research, but the incumbents in the space didn't want you to transact online. They wanted to drive you into the store, and so they wanted you to feel like you had to walk into a store to to buy a mattress so that they can convince you to spend a lot more money than you have to. And so with Casper, we decided let's put all of the information we had about our brand and business online. Let's talk to people honestly about what it takes to find a good mattress. It turns out you need to sleep on the mattress to know if it creates a great night of sleep. And then we'll give you 100 nights to try it. And if you don't love it, we'll come pick it up. You don't have to rebox it. You don't have to bring it back to the store. We'll make that as easy as possible so that there was really no barriers to making the decision. And so we, we tried to put that all together. We launched the business under Casper.com, and we sold one mattress that we designed in six different sizes, and that kind of kicked it off for us. So at what point, I mean, this is a big idea. You're totally sort of changing consumer behavior to something that they want. Um, you're changing an industry. At what point did you realize, wait a second, we're, we're on to something? <laughs> so we um, we raised a small seed round before we launched just based on the idea. Um, so we raised $1.85 million there. And when we raised that that capital, you know, we had forecasted that we would do just shy of $2 million in kind of our first year in business. And we thought that'd be really great. We, we could build from there. Uh, we ended up doing that amount of business in kind of our first 60 days. Uh, within the first week, we sold out of all the inventory we had built and all the inventory we thought we were going to build for uh, many number of weeks. And so the business just right out of the gate really resonated with people in a way that we did not see coming. And really within that first 18 months, we kind of always uh, under-forecasted or underestimated what the demand for the, the product was. And we underestimated how many people would be sharing the unboxing experience and post that online. We underestimated how many people would tell their friends and family about it. We underestimated how many people would read about us on social media and then come to buy from us. And all of that was awesome. And, and it's still kind of the, the kind of viral flywheel that supports the business today and is the reason why we've continued to grow as quickly as we have. And it's been amazing. Is that how people found out about the brand? Because I, I, obviously you're not in a mattress store where you know lots of people are probably going to go and, 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 and buy new bedding and all that. How did they find out about you guys? How'd the flywheel start? Yeah, in the beginning, it was all word of mouth. Um, so we launched with some press coverage about our fundraise and about the product. And it was unusual to see uh, you know, early stage venture capital money come into a, a company that was trying to change the mattress world. 
and so a few people wrote about it, and from that, we were off to the races. People loved the idea. They bought it. They shared it, um, and it really became a, a word-of-mouth phenomenon, and it was, it was awesome to see that kind of passion and that excitement around a category that never had been shared before. Uh, you know, when we were raising the seed round, we were told no dozens and dozens of times. You can never do something cool in the mattress industry. You can never do something sexy. It's never going to be something people brag about. And yet, you know, today we get so many social media posts and, and customers talking to us and about us online that it, it's been remarkable. And that, that was something the industry had never seen before. And in, uh I guess, when did you find that the mattress companies started believing that you're a real player? Did they, did they, were you, were you initially dismissed by, by them as well? We were definitely initially dismissed. We're, we're candidly still dismissed by some of the incumbents in the space, uh, in that they, they just think that, it, you know, growth will slow or that this is something that, that has a, you know, a ceiling that we're at. And they're always dismissive of kind of how big we believe we will get. Um, and it, it's funny. I remember in one of our first offices, uh, we were listening to one of the public company's earnings calls, and an analyst asked one of the public company CEOs about Casper, and there was just dead air for like 20 seconds. And we were like, oh, my God, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he acknowledged that consumers are shopping more and more online. It's becoming part of their, their um, purchase path, but that was kind of it. So, um, again, dismissive at the time. And I think that's that's a general trend that I observe across a lot of innovative or disruptive companies. Are the incumbents always underestimate, um, you know, how how big of a force that can become, especially when they have a different perspective on what it takes to succeed long term. So, have you seen some of their behavior change, um, or maybe not across the board, but have there been some some substantive changes? Uh, definitely, a, a number of the incumbents in the space have launched copycat competitors try to launch their own brands, try to brand against us. Uh, in New York, one of our competitors will have you know, their bed, our bed, and, and try to show that they're identical when they're not. Um, it's, it's been remarkable at, at just how much the industry has responded to us, how much we've been able to change the industry. Uh, it's completely different uh, here in the U.S. than it was four years ago, and it's just remarkable because it's, it's literally an industry where we're competing against you know, three, four brands that are over a hundred years old. So these are these are incumbent state businesses that have been great businesses for a very long time. But we have a, a very different view on what we want to build with Casper. We have a, a different view on what the consumers want. We have a different view on where sleep is going. Um, and so it's been great to see consumers respond and, and vote with their wallets. And uh, we, we think there's still a lot of room for change to come. Has it helped cleaned up, clean up the mattress industry at all? Or do you find that the same games are still being played inside the stores with consumers? Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think the incumbents have a hard time changing the way that they do business. Um, and part of that is that the incumbents have their own set of issues to deal with. So the largest mattress retailer in the country has a parent company that is dealing with uh, some financial realities that means they can't invest into the business. So Whereas I think they realize that they need to change, they need to put the consumer first. Uh, when you're when you're distressed, when you don't have the ability to invest long term, when you're highly levered, um, all of these factors means that you you aren't able to change your business how you would like to. And so, unfortunately, I think most consumers are still having a very negative experience when they're buying a mattress 
fortunately, more and more consumers know that Casper's around, that, that there's alternatives. But that brand awareness gap is still our biggest obstacle to growth. You know, we're, we're only a four-and-a-half-year-old brand I'm competing against Sealy, Sim, and Serta that are all 100-plus-year-old brands. You know, even Tempur-Pedic, one of the newer entrants, is a 30-plus-year-old brand. So um, th- they have the benefit of brand awareness, and we're doing our best to, to try to build our brand awareness so the consumers know there's a, an alternative out there to kind of the store in every corner. And on the flip side, there are obviously a number of incumbents, but since you guys launched, you've got a bunch of new sort of upstart brands that are doing something somewhat similar. What's your perspective on sort of how they're competing and what's your take on, on how you guys are dealing with that? Yeah, we've been we've been blown away uh, at how many kind of copycats Casper spawned and just where we saw competition coming from every angle imaginable. It's, it's really unlike any other startup I've seen um, with how many companies came into the space. But the good news is that having all of these companies come in, having a lot of capital flow into kind of this movement in the industry has really helped educate consumers that there is a better, smarter way. So I I think it's increased the amount of pressure on the incumbents, and I think it's increased the pool that um, kind of we play in within that direct-to-consumer share of the overall industry landscape. So I think that's been great. And I think Casper is well-positioned to be kind of the long-term winner in now what will be a much more sizable share of market within the overall mattress buying uh, industry. And how, how are they typically, so maybe go in a little more detail on how you, you walked us through kind of how you're being attacked by, by the big guys, if mm-hmm. you will, how, how are the smaller guys trying to nip at you? What's their, what's their, what's their strategy and tactics? Yeah. So this actually goes back to a lesson I learned with my first company was that uh, the economics in any single channel of acquisition can become very challenged. And so we had competitors that were really focused on Google search. We had competitors that were really focused on Facebook. Uh, but what we saw was that none of our competitors were really focused on diversifying their their channels of acquisition and how they're building their brand and business. And that was something that we did very early on, uh, again, because of lessons learned previously for me. And so what we saw was a lot of of our competitors would pick kind of a single lane and then try to go after that really aggressively. Sometimes they would make inroads in it because they were very focused on that. But what we've seen is that none of them have really built a durable business, a durable way to kind of continue to acquire customers. And so um, a lot of them kind of grew very quickly. And then a lot of them have hit walls and and are struggling to either grow or or maintain kind of market share. And so uh, we think there's a shakeout that's already started to happen. We think that a lot of them are kind of tapping out on resources that they have at their disposal. And we think Casper is well positioned to kind of pick that share back up uh, after they do kind of lose steam. And I think one thing that's really differentiated Casper from really all of the uh, competitors, whether it's an incumbent or an upstart, is really our investment into the product and our investment into continuously making the products better and better. Uh, you know, Consumer Reports recognize us as the number one brand. Our mattresses are very highly rated because we do have a very kind of rigorous standard on how we're constantly taking in data from our consumers and making the products better and better. And so that's something that our competition also didn't do. And I think something that um, over time will increasingly differentiate us from kind of the pack following us. And is that – have you found that to be you – know, for mattresses, the Consumer Reports seal of approval has always been – a bit of uh, one of the key metrics. Is that something that you guys cite against the the upstarts as as a point a key point of differentiation? Like, I, I, you know, one of the things we think about as investors always is just you know what's what's that what's your north star and what actually makes your product different? Like, how do you articulate that to consumers? 
Yeah, I think, you know, we're very proud of the Consumer Reports work. We're very proud of kind of all of the accolades that the product has gotten, you know, time invention of the year. There's a, a long list. Um, but I, I think probably the thing that differentiates the most is probably just our perspective. And our perspective is one that we want to be the first brand that stands for a better night of sleep. And what that means is that we think about sleep end to end. And this is actually something that we learn just by studying our customers and their their experiences when uh, we just sold a mattress. We engineered that mattress to circulate air because when you circulate air, it creates a cooler environment. It modulates temperature, humidity, dew point, et cetera. And then we saw customers were putting other people's mattress protectors or other people's sheets on it, and they weren't engineered around the same thesis that you need to circulate air in order to sleep cool and sleep better. And there's a lot of data around that. Uh, so then we, we quickly kind of said we have to own the sleep experience end to end. Every product that's that's impacting your sleep is something that Casper – could and should play in. And so we've started down that journey. We launched pillows, we launched sheets, we launched a mattress protector, we launched the foundation, and we did all of those things so that we really create the first sleep system that works together and seamlessly in a very passive way to make sure that you're sleeping the best night of, po- best night of sleep possible. And we're doing that against competition that only thinks about a mattress or only thinks about a pillow. And so we just think that perspective allows for us to have a, a kind of differentiated point of view and that that's coming across to the consumer more and more as we expand our portfolio products. Switching gears, you know, five founders. You know, one thing that's that's definitely come up for me and Robin in our careers is just thinking about the, the multi-founder dynamic and it's certainly been a theme on our show. Walk us through how how are the roles separated, like, Maybe start, we'll start out the baseline. Let's yeah. start with how do you divide up? How do you divide it up? Yeah, and I would say it's something we've always gotten asked about. And you know, my lesson learned is that there's no right or wrong formula. The nice thing with the five of us are that we had very complementary skill sets. They were not overlaps um, in backgrounds or in interests. And so the way we divided it up in the beginning was. Uh, you know, I, I've always worn the CEO hat. One of my co-founders wore this. How did you even decide that? Uh, that was because I'd been CEO before. Um, I had kind of the longest entrepreneurial path and, and had run my own company before. So uh, I guess just lack of options. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I drew the short straw. Um, but it, it, it's, again, it, it's where my background right. was. Mm-hmm. And, and yep. so um, had a little bit more perspective on, on kind of that role. Uh, one of my co-founders, Gabe, is our CTO, and he's a technical guy. And, and he built the code for our first website and continues to oversee the tech team. Um, I'd mentioned Jeff. Uh, he's a product guy. He's an industrial designer. He's a mechanical engineer, brilliant guy, had spent a decade-long career at IDEO. Uh, Luke is uh, Luke was our chief creative officer. Uh, he was always the creative guy. So he oversaw brand and, and experience and things like that. Um, and then Neil was kind of the ops guy who was working with factories, making sure we were shipping, kind of developing our supply chain, et cetera. So from the beginning, we said, you know, very clear division of responsibilities. And also this isn't going to be kind of a, a democracy. We, we said it's important that we function correctly. And so, you know, when there were ties or when, you know, there were things that, that would happen, you know, the person who was in charge of that function would make the decision and we would move on and we would all um, commit to whatever that decision was. So that, that, could, you over, could you overrule it as CEO? So if it was something that came up to me, like if there was a decision that we, we had – violent disagreement on then i would make the ultimate call yeah it sounds really interesting because you know you guys are all different backgrounds and it fit perfectly was that happenstance or did you guys 
tailor that when you were when you were forming this incredible team? No, it was it was very serendipitous, and it was also just serendipitous on the roles uh, that we would play given the backgrounds that we had. Um, three of my co-founders, excuse me, three of my co-founders went to Brown University together, so they were friends. They had known each other. Uh, Jeff and myself were, were kind of the new guys to the group, mm-hmm. um, but it, it came together beautifully, and it's been a wonderful partnership. I do have the best partners. We continue to all be great friends, um, and it, it's worked out really, really well. Um, you know, we we had one leave the business to go start something new, and and that's been great too. He liked the earlier days of of running a business and starting a business, and uh, you know, Luke's doing great on that front. And and so I, I it's one of the things that I, I count as definitely being super blessed on is just having great partners who've been great uh, kind of personal support, and we've all kind of stayed very close and good friends, and it's worked out really well. And then from a operating standpoint, do you plan on continuing as CEO all the way through, or do you do you plan on bringing on someone else? Like, how do you, how do you think about that that decision making process? Yeah, I um the the only part I would challenge on that is I, you know I don't know what all the way through means. means. Like, so I uh, I definitely continue want to continue to be CEO as long as uh, I can serve at the pleasure of the board. Um, I you know I think we're trying to build an iconic global brand, and so that's a journey that. You know, it takes decades, not not even years. Um, we we have tons of respect for brands like Nike and Under Armour that have really kind of changed the consumer landscape, and that's what we want to do. We think that sleep is becoming the third part, uh, the third pillar of wellness, and we want Casper to be the top of mind brand around that movement that really is in its infancy and will play out over uh, many years to come. Uh, and so, as of right now, I'm having a blast. I think you know the company's doing really well. Fortunately. Uh, I think we collectively have a, a great vision on where the company can and should go, and, and we have a lot of, of execution to do, and, and I'm excited to lead that. How often do you guys get together to talk about what what does a win look like for, for each of you? Because you have multiple people, right, and the dreams might be slightly different. Obviously, you're, you're having some con- you know, degree of conversation. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and it's not just about the founders. It's um, it's the founder dynamic and group is really important. You have executives that come into the business at different stages with kind of different career backgrounds and different aspirations and what they want. You certainly have investors that have different priorities and have come in at different stages of the business. And so, uh, I think one of the you know important jobs of a CEO is to really just balance those different constituencies. Um, so the founders, we we often get together and talk about personally what you know, is making us happy or not happy. Uh, we've had to re-engineer how we work as a company as we've brought in executives, and that means shuffling around roles. Uh, you know, kind of the rules we set from the beginning was we have to do what's best for the company first, and then we could solve personally what we want second. And so I think we've all kind of adhered to that as we've made changes within the org. Um, and, you know, like I said, there, there's definitely been tough conversations. It's an emotional topic for sure. Um, but at the same time, I think we, we've managed to do it in a way that that uh, keeps setting the company up for success, keeps allowing us to you know bring in the help that we need around us with other executives, and um, we've had great support at the board level around that. And so so far, it's it's worked out really well. I mean, speaking of bringing other stakeholders, tell us a little bit about how Target became a shareholder in the business and in the thought process around that. Yeah, Target's been a great partner, um, and it really came. Uh, once I had the opportunity to spend time with Brian and Kathy, their CEO and CFO, uh, they're amazing people. They're amazing business people. We kind of see the world together in the same way. We see where sleep is going. We see how important wellness is. 
at the same time, we see changes in retail and, and how consumers are changing the way they shop. Target's at the forefront of thinking about brands and how to bring brands in front of consumers. For us, one of our biggest challenges is that brand awareness piece. How do we get Casper in front of more folks? You know, 30 million Americans are shopping Target every week, and, and now they're seeing Casper products at more and more stores. And so that was an exciting opportunity. And it really was just a, a meeting of the minds. And, and every time we spend time together, we get excited about what we could do together, uh, about what we could accomplish, about how the brands are, are so um, complementary to each other. And so um, when we were raising our Series C round of capital, uh, they ended up being a, a perfect partner for us. And do you see them as a potential acquirer of the business downstream, or do you see them as just you know, uh, an, an interested stakeholder as part of the part of the Casper journey? Yeah, as of right now, we we count them as an interesting stakeholder, um, and that's exactly what we wanted when we got together with uh, them on our Series C. We said there's a long journey ahead with Casper. We would love for you to be a part of that, and they were excited about doing it. And I think they they have shown that they had the right intentions in just being helpful, and that's that's really what they have been. Uh, Brian and Kathy are available to me anytime if I want to just pick their brain about something I'm dealing with. Um, you know, Brian in particular has been a great resource to me if if there's something on my mind, whether it's you know at the board level or the company level or a strategic level. Um, and so it, they've delivered on everything they promised. Um, and you know, at the same time, Casper's done phenomenally well since we've had their investment. And so we're really pleased on you know that we were able to deliver on what we promised to them. And so so far, we're, we're very happy with where we stand. What's been the biggest surprise for you in going from an online brand to um, to an in-store brand like Target, what's been what's been something that's gone well, and what's been a challenge? So I think we talk about it more of the challenge of going from kind of a monoline business where we sold through our .dot com, and that was easy and straightforward, and we were in the U.S. with one product line, and now it's it's a very complicated landscape. We're in multiple geographies. We're selling through multiple channels of distribution. We have our own stores. We have retail partners like Target, like Nordstroms, like Amazon. And there's just a lot more complexity with that. And I, I think at one point we were probably a bit naive that, you know, we could have, you know, one product and, and just take it to market everywhere we want to be. And in reality, when you start to have multiple channels of distribution, you have to be really thoughtful about how you're uh, taking what products to market through what channels and what partners and how you promote them. And there's just a lot of complexity that, that's very different than when you're just thinking about kind of running an e-commerce business or having e-commerce as your sole channel of distribution. And so managing that complexity is something that we're still trying to get our hands around and, and we'll continue to try to get our hands around it um, because we think the opportunity in front of us is to really build one of the, the preeminent omni-channel businesses and brands that really puts the consumer first, that leverages our direct-to-consumer business model, the data, the analytics, the digital connection we have with our consumers, but do it in a way where they can access our products wherever they are, whenever they want it. Was that always the intent uh, to be omni-channel or was it at one point supposed to just be a digitally native brand? No, it was always supposed to have an offline component, um, although I think the scale of that offline opportunity has morphed. And so we learned this from the day we launched the business. Literally April twenty second, 2014, when we launched the business, a customer came by, knocked on the door and said, oh, I'm here to try the product. And we were dumbfounded because we hadn't thought of that um, possibility. This is this is at headquarters? This is at headquarters. <laughs> and we were on a, a second-story walk-up in New York. Wow. We quickly converted what we thought would be our conference room into a bedroom. And after that day, we did not have a conference room in headquarters, and we camped out at the, the hotel down the street from us. And instead, we had customers coming through the door every day. And so 
I think from that moment on, we knew that we would have to have a significant offline component. And it it's really just goes back to, and it seems obvious now, that people want to lay on a bed before they buy it. And we, we totally get that. And we want to respect that, that kind of thinking and, and that um, paradigm. And so our retail stores now, we have 20 in the market, uh, 19 in the U.S., one in Canada. They're doing phenomenally well. Uh, we just had a record-setting weekend with Labor Day weekend. and That's awesome. We're, we're super excited about what uh, retail will do for our business and for our customer experience. So what does Casper look like five years from now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we now talk about internally how by 2025, we want to be a, a $5 billion brand and business. We want to be a global brand and business. Uh, we'll have a significant presence in Europe, in America, and in um, Asia. Uh, we want to be known as the top-of-mind sleep brand. Uh, so when people think about getting a better night of sleep, we want to be the first brand that they think about. We're going to have a whole host of products that allow you to do that from our core mattress, which uh, we think there's still a lot of innovation we could take to market around the mattress, but really an entire portfolio of products that are in the bedroom and helping you sleep better. Lastly, when does Mattress Firm go out of business? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I don't see them go uh, quite uh, away like a, a Toys R Us maybe. Um, I do think they uh, end up being a, a much different size retailer, and I, I think that happens sooner than later. Right after the break, we'll be back with our guest, Casper co-founder and CEO, Philip Krim. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Not really. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. Have feedback for us? Leave us a review. And now let's get back to our episode with Casper's Philip Krim. So was there ever a bet the company moment that you went through? <laughs> uh, it feels like there's always bet the company moment <laughs> for us. Um, yeah, you know, I think what comes to mind in the, the early days was, uh, you know, I mentioned we had a lot of supply chain and inventory problems because we underestimated demand. And one of my co-founders, Neil, actually had uh, the brilliant idea to send every customer that was um, not getting their bed on time an aero bed. And we would buy it on Amazon and have it shipped directly to the customer. And at first, we're like, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, and then we didn't realize how many customers would be backordered. And so this ended up costing us a ton of money. And I'm sure Aerobed was just kind of like, what is going on? So, so Amazon <laughs> shut us down. They thought we were reselling it. We, weren't, <laughs> we had to show them it was just a gift. That's uh, awesome. And it, it ended up costing us a ton. But what it got us in goodwill was just awesome. And so uh, it was a great call. It was was not an obvious call. It was not one we wanted to run by the investors at right. the time. But uh, it, it worked out super well. And I think that that mentality of kind of putting the customer first and, and working backwards is something that still we're very proud of. And, and we try to uh, make it continuously very well known that, that that's how we operate as a company. Is there going to be a Casper air mattress coming out? <laughs> no Casper air mattresses. Uh, we, we really uh, have focused on foam because we, we think foam materials and the, the material science around foam creates the ideal ergonomic and support and comfort that you need with a mattress. So uh, we're pleased with the lineup as it is now. Well, obviously, it's been, a, been quite the success. Is there a particular high that stands out in your mind? Uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's like a, a particular high. And, and like I said, we, we, don't, we don't talk about the journey we're on as like we're going to get to this point and then we could wave the flag and, and declare victory. Um, you know, I think there are important milestones with the company. We try to celebrate every anniversary. So every April 22nd, we do both a consumer promotion and we celebrate it internally. 
um, because we're very proud that we made it another year that that we uh, continue to exist and thrive. And and I've always tried to use those moments as moments of inflection, just to look back on where we were and and look forward to where we're going. I would say between funding milestones and, and anniversaries, those have always been kind of moments of reflection. Um, and, and now we're also doing kind of annual global all hands, which actually happens next week for us, uh, where we fly everyone in from all over the, the world. We have offices in Berlin, San Francisco, L.A. now. And so those are, are another great moments for us to kind of reflect. And they always give me kind of a, a personal high just to see how many folks are, are now working at Casper and, and how many people have really dedicated themselves to our mission. And that's always uh, super exciting. What is that count, by the yeah, way? I'm curious, too. We're, we're about uh, 400 people oh, wow. um, in, in kind of uh, worldwide. Worldwide? Business. Yeah, worldwide. So entrepreneurship's never easy. Is there a particular low point that stands out? You know, it, it goes back to, I think, being a, a customer-centric brand and business. And so anytime we've disappointed customers, uh, it, it is painful and it's painful because we hear them very vocally and I think that's you know the benefit and sometimes the pain of being a direct-to-consumer business and so it goes back to the early days where we we were misquoting shipments and and a mattress is not like a nice to have when people need a new mattress they need it (laughs) and so when we would get people telling us they were sleeping on the floor or sleeping on a couch like uh you know those those were always very painful moments and uh we we try to balance kind of the consumer voice even today uh, we continue to have delivery issues with some of our delivery partners, and we make sure that, that everyone in the company knows that when we have those, that they're really, really challenging for the consumer, and they should be challenging for us. And so even when we hit you know, a 98 99% SLA on delivery, that still means that a lot of c- customers are not getting the products that we promised them. And so we, we've always tried to have a, a balanced view of customers who have said Casper's changed their life, and they could sleep like they've never slept before, or they can walk like they've never walked before. And at the same time, we still have delivery issues. We still have product issues that we need to work through and make sure that we're holding our partners uh, to a very high level because it can be very painful. I bet I can predict this answer on this one. This, we, we got a unique product type for this next question. I, I, what I was going to say is you probably don't have many sleepless nights, but <laughs> <laughs> but what is keeping you up at night these days? Yeah, I um I think it goes back to kind of how we, we knew the business would get a lot more complex. And so that means we need to grow the team and we need to grow it in a way where we're standing up very significant businesses very quickly. So we went from zero retail stores to 20 within six months. We went from no wholesale partners to um, almost a dozen now within uh, nine months. And all of that adds a lot of complexity to every part of the business. So we've had a higher great retail talent. We've had a higher... Uh, great talent across the business and making sure we do that in a way where we're not changing our culture, where we're continuing to maintain it being a great place to work uh, is, is super uh, important to us as founders. And, you know, so far we, we've had a pretty good track record at that, but um, making sure that we maintain that is is really important to me and, and something that I think about a lot. Wow, Robin, that was an amazing interview. I mean, who who would have thought that one of the most iconic brands would be built by taking a large mattress, being able to define it into a shippable format and have it scale the way it did. But really thinking about stepping back for a moment, it's a conversation that's coming up in our boardroom all the time within VMG of digitally native direct-to-consumer brands. At what point do they need to cross over into 
brick and mortar retail. And honestly, I think what we always talk about is there really is no one size fits all sort of solution to it. I think the, you know, how Casper's addressed it is really thinking about physical retail in two ways. The first being a deep partnership with Target, as well as taking an investment from them. And the second really sort of this idea of having these showroom formats and allowing consumers to experience the brand and really try out the product. I think that the really exciting thing about all that is this idea of really going through a global expansion on that showroom, which also coincides with Philip's personal passion. Yeah. Travel. My wife and I love traveling. Uh, We actually had two weddings this weekend that took us to L.A. and Montreal. Oh, Um, what? That's rough. It's rough. But, you know, we always try to enjoy the cities that we're in. Yeah. Um, We had a a wedding. Was it on the Casper private jet or was it? I wish. One of my co-founders got married in London this summer. That was awesome. And so we got to go to the the countryside up there. And that was beautiful. So, um, yeah, I'm lucky. My wife's able to travel with me on, on a lot of trips. And so that's been really fun. All right, Philip Krim, ready for our signature game, Rapid Fire 60 Seconds. Let's you go. ready? All right, let's do this. All right. Cat person or dog person? Dog. West Coast or East Coast? East Coast. What's your go-to alcoholic beverage? Uh, dirty Vodka Martini on the Rocks. Favorite <laughs> sports team? Houston Astros. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest pet peeve? Ooh. Uh, people that are late. Hmm. Favorite superhero? Batman. Person who's been most influential in your life? Parents. One place you want to travel right now? Uh, Northern Italy. Oh, if you could trade lives with one person in the world for a day, who would it be? <laughs> uh, good one. Uh, Jose Altuve. <laughs> I, I would normally say like Elon, but he's probably not having the most fun right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Biggest fear. Uh, I I still don't love public speaking. Favorite book? I like biographies. Uh, The one on John D. Rockefeller was awesome. Hmm. Uh, Lincoln was awesome. What are you most proud of? Uh, I think uh, finding my wife and uh, we now have a a puppy, so building the family together is uh, Very nice. You had a time machine. Does it? Yep. Okay. All right. Go Astros. Cool, go Astros. For the listeners out there, if you had one piece of advice to give them, what would it be? Uh, um, you know, for me, it's uh, I, I, we talked about my co-founders, and I've been very lucky to have the co-founders that I have, and uh, it was very serendipitous, but it's worked out tremendously well. And I think any startup journey is, is incredibly hard, so if you can get lucky and pick the right co-founders, it can make all the difference. Um and it's one of those things where, you know, you just have to kind of go with your gut and go with your intuition. There's no way to really solve for it in my mind. Um, so if you, if you feel like you have found a great partner or partners, uh, just pull the trigger and, and go down the journey because it can be exceptionally rewarding, uh, though challenging at times. Well, Philip Krim, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Wayne. And I'm Robin. We'll be back on the next episode with Sheena Yatanis, founder and CEO of Kosas Cosmetics, a fast-rising star in the beauty space. What started as a four-color lipstick line has since blossomed into a much bigger company in an impressively short amount of time. But Sheena always knew she had her work cut out for her. I wasn't really groomed for this life. 
And I do see a lot of other entrepreneurs in my position who are groomed for this life. And uh, I didn't have that. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.